Politics Theory Other is brought to you by the show's supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who publish lots of excellent left-wing titles, perfect for PTO listeners. Until January 3rd, Verso have 40% off everything on their website. Highlights this year include Bad Gaze by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, Cannibal Capitalism by Nancy Fraser, and Decolonial Marxism by Walter Rodney. They also have bundled ebooks with every print purchase, meaning you can gift the print book if you want to and start reading the ebook straight away. Stock your shelves with radical and visionary thinking that reimagines a different kind of world. Verso's big end of year sale finishes on January 3rd. Go to versobooks.com for more information. You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. In this week's episode, I'll be looking at, first, with the biggest wave of strikes in Britain for a generation or more, can we afford to pay public sector workers properly? The government says no. Secondly, I'll take a look at the new plans to deregulate Britain's financial system and what they mean for any future financial crises. Finally, with three big central banks across the world set to announce more interest rate rises this week, we'll have a look at whether any of this is really doing any good. On to our first story. Can we afford the public sector pay rises that striking workers are demanding right the way across the public sector, from nurses to university lecturers to postal workers? All of them are putting in claims asking for pay increases that at least meet the rate of inflation that we now face, which remains very, very high. The price of particularly essentials, everyone will have noticed, food and energy has been soaring over the last year. But public sector pay in particular has been held down very deliberately by this government, not just over the last year or so, but really for the last decade. And that's why you get this immediate sense of anger from many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people employed by the government in its various different arms to do all kinds of essential work, their feelings of frustration that they've not been listened to and they're not receiving a fair deal at work. Now, the government says to all this that we simply can't afford to pay them. It's been uh, saying that it would cost £28 billion or £1,000 for every single household in the country to try and give the public sector workers a pay rise in line with inflation. Um, this is a bit ridiculous and just a starting point. You know, you can't just say, OK, here's 28 billion divided by everybody in the country and that's how much you're all going to have to pay. We have a tax system that taxes people differently. Lots of people don't pay any income tax. They're not paid enough. I mean, that's a tragedy of low pay in this country. You're not paid enough to pay income tax. Lots of people pay more tax because it's actually somewhat progressive in our tax system. So it's not £1,000 straight away. But it's actually worse than this. That £28 billion figure is just quite dodgy in itself. Top Treasury officials, uh, grilled by MPs earlier this week, weren't able to support the £28,000 per household number at all. The new Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, James Bowler, said he was not sure if it emanated, in a, a fine civil service word there, from anyone in his department. 
The basic problem is that this big, scary number excludes the fact that many workers in the public sector have already been offered uh, a pay increase, typically around 3%, far below the current rate of inflation, 10%, 11%, but nonetheless a real offer of a pay increase by government. So if you want to understand how much it's going to cost to meet the rate of inflation, you have to knock off the money that's already been uh, allocated to this. If you do this, you get the total bill down to about £18 billion. But then, of course, the next step is that all those people, if they're paid more, will also be paying more in tax. They'll go off, they'll pay income tax, they'll pay national insurance. When they buy things, they'll pay VAT. So it's around about another third of what the government pays out as extra um, pay for those workers comes back to them as tax. If you do that, you get down to about £12 billion, which is less than half the government claim. Now, that's still quite a lot of money. And this is a government that has continually talked about there being no money left and there is this legendary fiscal black hole we're all supposed to get very frightened about uh, back in October. But if we think back to what's happened to the government's finances since the basically disastrous mini-budget in September of uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, now what's happened since then is that government borrowing costs have fallen quite significantly. But that fall in borrowing costs means that even inside the government's own budget, against its own target for what is supposed to be happening to the public finances over the next five years or so, there's more money to to spend. And if you go and look at how much money there is to spend, you find that because of this fall in borrowing costs, you've got around about £12 billion happily matching almost exactly what you'd want to pay to those public sector workers to give them a pay rise. That means that even inside the government's existing budget, they could afford to make uh, this pay increase. Now, you don't have to do it inside the existing budget. You could tax uh, wealthy people properly. You could do something like equalising capital gains tax, um, paid overwhelmingly by the very rich, equalising the rate they pay with with their income tax uh, rate, and you get about £16 billion a year. Again, enough to cover the kind of numbers we're talking about. So, of course, we could afford to pay the strikers, and we should. We shouldn't be insisting that people who do really essential work, or really any work, uh, have to suffer this huge rate of inflation and wages that are disappearing in real terms when set against it. Now, what's interesting here is that whilst the government has this intransigent hard line that it's trying to stick to, is that there's a number of city economists and establishment figures turning against the government line. You find the former head of the Treasury, the man who oversaw as head of the department uh, in the 2010s, austerity for a number of years, Sir Nicholas McPherson, approvingly citing an article attacking the idea of a wage price spiral and saying that the government needed to pay the workers. Financial Times chief commentator Martin Wolfe made the same point in his column this week. The former Monetary Policy Committee member, former chief economist at Citigroup, Wilhelm Beuter, said the same thing. Their arguments all point in the same direction. They say, basically, that this government's intransigence and belligerence, refusing to negotiate seriously, breaking off the talks, is only storing up problems for later. Public sector class warfare will be coming throughout next year, Boita reckons, if the government doesn't settle now. So his argument, and the argument of other people making this kind of case, is that instead of just doing the kind of cosplay version of Margaret Thatcher that this edition of the Tories have in their heads, where, you know, Thatcher goes on, takes on all the unions and miraculously defeats all of them and wasn't that wonderful, this is the sort of fairy story version of the 1980s. The argument from these people is that actually the government should learn from what Thatcher actually did, which was to carefully pick 
the battles that the government was going to fight, paying off groups of workers and so isolating other unions, slicing the trade union movement salami style, as a confidential Conservative Party report from the late 1970s put it. So Thatcher awarded in 1979, in her first year in office, a 25% pay increase across the public sector in order to avoid a second winter of discontent. But she bounced straight out of that into a fight with the steelworkers at the time in a nationalised industry, insisting that she couldn't make, and her government couldn't make, a big pay award to them. And that was a fight that the steelworkers eventually lost, one of the first of the big defeats for the trade union movement in the 1980s. In other words, divide and rule is a smart way for this government to try and take on this wave of strikes. But instead, they've set up something like a a mad battle royale across the entire public sector, seemingly without any idea of how to win or even what a, a realistic victory might look like. There's a chance here that 2022 could be a turning point for unions in Britain, that even if the government now tries to settle with the nurses, it would be an example of a kind of divide and rule uh, tactic applied rather late in the day, that instead of being divide and rule, that a settlement like this would just give a good example for everyone else to follow. It would just lead to everybody else thinking, well, if they've got something decent out of their campaign and the threats of strikes or even actually going on strike, we too can do the same. Of course, we can and we should afford these public sector pay increases. But every worker in Britain deserves a pay rise. And it may be that what we're seeing now is the spark that's needed to get every other person out there currently suffering from the exceptionally high rates of inflation, the confidence and the idea that they need to go out and try and organise and win themselves. On to our second story, and in stark contrast with the intransigence shown by the government to striking essential workers, the government can't move quickly enough to help out socially useless, not my words, but the words of the former head of the Financial Services Authority, Adair Turner, socially useless bankers and financiers. And I use that word and that term advisedly. The changes that the government has introduced this week to how banking and finances regulated in Britain seem almost designed to increase the amount of socially useless activity that our financial institutions are doing and squeeze out whatever socially useful function our banks and financial institutions may actually be performing. A lot of these regulations were introduced in the wake of the 2008 crisis, which revealed in rather stark uh, terms the kind of crazy risks that built up in the global financial system, but that was particularly damaging for the British economy and Britain's financial system, simply because it was so large and so overextended and so globalised, they had take on risks right the way across the world, which led to massive bank failures, the bailouts, and then somewhere down the line, the excuse that we all had to do austerity for almost a decade. Terrible consequences all around. And as part of an attempt to deal with uh, that crisis, a raft of legislation and new regulations were introduced to try and make banking and finance a little bit more stable than it was in 2008. Things like the ring fence, uh, so-called, intended to keep the riskier activity of banks' investment divisions. Uh, Investment, you have to think here, of quite a sort of broad term encompassing all sorts of financialised gambling. Risky activities in their investment divisions separate from the more conventional retail banking that you or I would normally use. The ring fence was there to try and separate the two and make sure that whatever risks were going to take place in the investment side didn't fall on top of retail customers. 
They've also uh, introduced some changes to how insurance companies need to set aside a certain amount of capital, of reserves, a kind of spare change, if you like, so that they can, if really lots and lots of wild events happen, uh, there's many, many payouts they have to make, they've got something in reserve to make sure it doesn't turn into a big systemic crisis across the whole of Britain's very large, very globalised insurance uh, industry. This seems particularly wild at a time when obviously extreme weather events are increasing. The insurers are having to pay out more and more for the kind of changes that we're seeing as a result of climate change, as a result of how the planet itself is changing across the world. This is a problem for insurance industry. Changes to the need for those reserve requirements, for those capital requirements, just open up our insurance industry to all sorts of new uh, risks. Limits on bonuses have been scrapped. The senior managers rule, which was intended to hold senior managers in banks and financial institutions responsible for the failures on their watch, not really ever applied in practice, that's been ditched. Uh, Great chunks of the new regulations, in other words, introduced since 2008 have been dropped. The effect overall is to basically make the financial system as a whole rather riskier. And actually, that's kind of the intention, because if you make it riskier, you may make it more profitable. Now, this isn't really about ideology or perhaps even simple stupidity. It reflects a degree of desperation uh, about the state of the British economy and the lack of any better ideas on the part of the Conservative government and our major economic institutions. That whatever grand talk there might have been, perhaps even a decade ago, of rebalancing the economy away from financial services, especially in the wake of Brexit, there's not very much else that British capitalism can do where it can definitely get a place on the world stage with something that for the rest of the world is globally significant. We have financial services and that's the kind of thing that we can do for the rest of the world. These reforms are intended to compensate for the fact that Again, in the wake of Brexit, financial services in Britain have lost their privileged access to EU markets and have to go scooting around the rest of the world. Figures this week show that Britain's financial services are now more dependent on trade and working uh, with US institutions than they are making money out of the EU. So you deregulate to try and undercut your competitors. You've lost your special advantage in the EU. You deregulate, you make it cheaper and riskier to do financial activities in London in the hope of attracting uh, some of that free-flowing capital into the city of London and letting people get on with making money out of it. That could include, for instance, the shift that I think we've seen in recent weeks away from the very belligerent anti-China rhetoric that Rishi Sunak was coming out with during the Conservative Party leadership campaign and to a much more ameliatory, uh, we're open to business, we can deal with the Chinese regime sort of tone. The old George Osborne plan of making the city of London a major hub for Chinese-denominated financial transactions is still clearly knocking around somewhere. Deregulation is part of the plan to make financial services in Britain more attractive to the rest of the world. The problem with this is that when it's more attractive to the rest of the world, when you encourage high-risk activities, it's all the rest of us who live here who end up, as we saw in 2008, having to carry the can and having to pay for the bailouts. That is all very well saying a few more people are going to make a lot more money at the top of our financial institutions. But it's the rest of us, as we know, who carry the can when the thing fails. And the risks of failure are being increased by this process of deregulation. On to our final story this week, and that's the three major central banks, the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, will be meeting this week separately uh, in order to decide the level of their own interest rates. 
for the last six months, maybe 12 months or so, central banks around the world have been starting to ease up interest rates actually quite rapidly in the case of the Federal Reserve and a few others, with the idea that this would be a good way to rein in inflation. Now, what's actually happened is that whilst the banks have a theory and the people running those central banks have a theory that by increasing interest rates, you will clamp down on economic activity. And by clamping down on economic activity, in other words, you're going to make borrowing more expensive and perhaps make saving a bit more attractive. People will spend less. And if they spend less, there'll be less money flowing around the economy. And if there's less money flowing around the economy, well, perhaps you'll find that prices don't rise so rapidly because people aren't going off and spending wildly as, as the kind of model would have it. They believe something like this. And sometimes you get another version of it, which is that, okay, we know, this is roughly what the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has argued, we know that if we increase interest rates, you're probably going to increase the likelihood of a recession or even worse than a recession that's somewhat already upon us. But you're going to do that because you want to frighten workers into asking for lower pay and not going out on strike and because they're scared of becoming unemployed in a way they wouldn't be when, you know, unemployment's fairly low and labour markets are very tight. So that's the theory. And that's why central banks, for a period of time now, as we've seen this high inflation, have been busily trying to push up uh, interest rates. Now, that isn't really a good explanation of the kind of inflation we've seen over the last 12, 18 months. It's driven by huge external factors. It's not the case that if the Bank of England puts up its interest rate in Britain, that this will miraculously turn into cheaper gas that you're trying to buy from Qatar. It's certainly not the case if you pay nurses less or postal workers less, that gas you're buying from Norway suddenly becomes cheaper. None of this is how the economy works. But nonetheless, this is what central banks are doing. And nonetheless, what they're leading us towards is actually a worse recession than the one we needed to face. The potential here, as we come into 2023, is for not just a recession, which is obviously bad and painful for very, very large numbers of people. It means job losses. It means pay rises aren't as high as they used to be. But also high rates of inflation, because the causes of those inflation are things like the rapid increase in the price of food, especially in the last few months, or the rapid increases in the price of energy. The price of some of those essential items, like natural gas, has actually come down somewhat since its heights over the summer. And, and that's helping to pull down the headline rate of inflation. Probably, we find that the last uh, round of figures from the Office of National Statistics was a peak in the rate of inflation in Britain, and the rate will come down over the rest of next year. But that isn't anything to do with the Bank of England or any other central bank jamming up interest rates. That has a lot to do with changes in conditions of supply and demand for natural gas itself. The big switch, especially in Europe, out of using natural gas to uh, provide electricity and into trying to use, well, actually not very good from a climate point of view, coal to try and provide electricity instead. That's nothing to do with the central bank. That's nothing to do with interest rates. What we have instead is a systemic and institutional failure where central banks are insisting and pulling on this lever that at best has no impact and at worst is actively going to make life worse for people whilst at the same time we face a, a major series of economic, ecological and wider crises that the central banks themselves have absolutely no capacity to deal with. 2023 is set to be another year of upsets, and one of those upsets could well be the grim prospect of an extended recession combined with very high rates of inflation. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.